It is a great pleasure to welcome back the author of Driving Innovation from Within. This is the last in our series with Kayan Krippendorf. Welcome back, sir. Great to be here again, Aidan. Thank you. It's been great to do this with you. And just when we get to the end, he tells me he's a couple more books on the way as well. So <laughs> maybe we'll tell our audience about that as well. This is like the, you know, the Golden Gate Bridge effect. You, you're just getting to the end of the start again. It's called Proximity. I've been working on it for about a year and a half with my co-author, Rob Wolcott. He's the primary conceiver of this idea. And the idea of proximity is that if we take a long view in, in, in the, path, the direction of innovation, what we could say is that the production and provision of value moves closer to the point of demand in time and space. People want what they want when they want it. 3D printing, for example, is a technology that allows us to produce not only closer to where it's needed, but closer to when it's needed. I, I go into a car park, you get my car fixed, and it should be that I can just print the piece right there when I need it because it costs more to ship a piece than to uh, manufacture it. And so artificial intelligence allows us to create greater customizability of our products as things become more digitized. Our um, ability to use sensors, IoT devices, allow us to sense where demand is. The company that gets there first at the point of demand wins. And what we're saying is that as this digital transformation takes hold, that we're experiencing this bundle of technologies, so you might call them fourth industrial revolution technologies, it's, gonna, it's, it's enabling us to move a leap closer towards what we call P equals zero, the point where production and provision of value is exactly at the point of demand. So let's get into this book because I absolutely, we, everything we've been working towards, and as you said with your new books, you're building towards these all the time and you will kind of pull out a piece and kind of go, you know what, that's really developed or that really worked with a client and I want to share this kind of learning. And that's the case with this book. And what I found in a way I was reflecting on the, on the introduction you wrote for driving innovation from within, and I felt that you had hit the metal phase in your consulting work in a way, you were, or your writing work where you were, and, and just for those who haven't followed us up to date, the metal phase is this time of discontent, like that all progress comes from discontent with the way things are. You were frustrated with not seeing enough success with corporate innovation attempts. And that was until you worked with Gene Fawell from Macmillan. For years, I was doing these Outthink the Competition workshops. And when I did it for entrepreneurs, it worked really well. And, you know, five entrepreneurs, the leaders of the team, they work on it and they've come up with this idea and then they implement it and then the revenue starts accelerating. So I know that the process produces ideas that produce growth. But usually when I did it inside an, an existing company, I would we would find that the idea hits bureaucracy and politics and you know priority you know you know issues with priorities and and funding and stuff like that. But I, I kind of grew to believe that the those the large companies were stuck in metal that it wasn't possible for you to innovate from within. And most people believe that, right? If you look at lists of most innovative companies, it's the most innovative business people. It's usually entrepreneurs. Like, who do we talk? We talk about Elon Musk. We talk about Steve Jobs. We talk about Jeff Bezos or, you know, the, the people who um, are entrepreneurs. And so I fell into that belief. 
that I think most of us believe. Entrepreneurs are the innovators. They're the ones that create the creative destruction. And then large companies either die or they copy. So is it like, what's the point of me doing these workshops inside these large companies then, right? They would pay me a good deal of money to come in and, and do workshops and training. So that was a good business. But I was like, back in my mind, I was like, oh, this is, this is kind of a waste. But then this woman, Jean, she came up with this idea during a workshop. It was called, the, the job, it, it, became, it became called, originally it was Swoon Reads. And it was this idea of like a platform for would-be self-published authors, particularly in the romance genre. And I won't go into the business model, but we, you know, I just didn't think of anything of it. Another, another great idea that maybe will go, probably go nowhere. And then a few years later, I heard on the radio, they were talking about this thing. They changed the name, but I recognized it immediately. And it had succeeded. It was recognized as a major disruption in the, in, in, in the publishing or innovation in the publishing realm. It cuts against a lot of accepted industry norms. There were hundreds of people on it that were writing books, and it was rec it was recognized by CNN and and BBC as as a big innovation. So I went down to see her. I called her up and 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 said, "Hey, this is me. Can I come hear how you did it? I, I want to see if if she is the norm or she's an anomaly. And if she's an anomaly, how did she do it? So we can replicate that." And I went down to her office, living outside of New York and I in the suburbs, and I drove into or took the train into Grand Central, went to the Flatiron Building and talked to her about how she did it. And that put me on the path of writing this book. And I wanted to see, are there other genes like there, out there, right? Now, one thing you should know about Jean is that she created the brand, if you will. She didn't write the book, but she created the whole business model and brand around Goosebumps, around the Babysitter's Club. Earlier in her career, she invented the idea of the, the business model of a school-based book club for kids. So she's been a prolific innovator, but we don't know her. So I wanted to go find more of her and learn how they do it. There was a survey you ran. I'll tee you up with the questions and maybe you'll, find, you'll tell us what you found. So the first was you asked them who conceives of transformational ideas. The second was who develops the idea. And the third was who commercialized the idea. So maybe you'll share your findings from those three questions you asked. I interviewed 150 entrepreneurs and asked them what the barriers were, which we'll talk about. That analysis was, I found a list of the 30 most transformative innovations over the last three decades. This is not my list. It's a list curated by a panel of professors from Wharton Business School based off of thousands of submissions. And they were looking at who are, they're looking at one of the most transformative innovations. And these are the big innovations. This is like, this isn't like Facebook. This is the internet. This is email. This is DNA sequencing. This is MRIs, this is mobile phones, right? So, and then we went back with, with this analyst that I, worked, that I was working with and we went back and we said, who conceived of the idea? Who then developed the idea and who scaled the idea? And what we find is that only eight of the 30 most transformative innovations were conceived of by entrepreneurs. So 70% of society's most transformative innovations have come not from entrepreneurs, but from employees working inside established companies. And if you just sit with that for a little bit, think about this. All we do is talk about entrepreneurs, right? You don't know who invented 
the innovation that, you know, inside a company, right? You think of it as the company invented and not the person. So stories we tell about innovation are about entrepreneurs. And yet, if it were not for employee-driven innovation, you would not have a mobile phone today. If you had one, you wouldn't be able to connect it to the internet. If you could, you couldn't send an email. If you got sick, you couldn't get an MRI. You couldn't get a stent. If we sit and think about what the world would look like if it were not for employee-driven innovation, it would be a radically inferior world. Like radically. I'm not even saying like, oh, it's possible. It's like, oh, it's hard, but it's possible. What I'm saying is if you had to choose, luckily we don't have to choose, but if you had to choose by investing in an entrepreneur or an entrepreneur, seven times out of 10, you should invest in the entrepreneur. There's this kind of facade of like an employee not being creative and just sort of stamping paper and you know, doing politics and stuff like that. And so I really wanted to start to contribute to flipping that narrative and to really celebrate the entrepreneur, entrepreneur, because if entrepreneurs, if, if, if entrepreneur is a 70% chance that the entrepreneur is going to create the next transformative innovation that is going to solve the water crisis or solve the climate crisis or solve hunger or whatever, it's going to come from entrepreneur. And for our audience, don't forget, tune in to a brand new series on entrepreneurs and Kayan will be a guest in that as well on the book, The Corporate Explorer, where we'll actually go through corporate entrepreneurship and how to make it work with inside organizations. So we're going to go in a whole different direction with the show then as well across 2024. Kayan, I wanted to come back to something. There was one particular question you asked here. So you looked at who commercialized the idea and you say here it was competitors. More than 50% of the time, 16 out of the 30 you looked at, the innovator, you tell us, loses control of the innovation. Competitors then take over. We talked about iPads, for example, and Apple were not the first with, with a tablet. Then through a battle of players seeking to commercialize the innovation, the innovation scales. And you tell us about the story of Olivetti and the Programma 101. They had a hit that would transform the world then the competition takes notice. In 1968, HP launched its HP 9100 series. That was soon followed by innumerable competitors, Commodore, Micral, IBM, and Wang. So this is a pattern that you saw consistently, and this speaks to the whole idea that the second mouse gets the cheese, that it's not always the competitor or the originator of the idea that succeeds because of a whole host of reasons. I think it's two factors. Why, do, why, do, why, does, the, why does the innovator uh, lose the innovation or do, why does competitors pull away the innovation? I think that in one part, the existing innovator doesn't know what the, what the innovation's potential is. In fact, the Olivetti, when it created the program 101, I think it was at a World Fair, it wasn't even the main thing that they were displaying. It was like behind the scenes and then not enough people were coming into the booth. So they pulled out this thing and they didn't know what they had when they saw the reaction from people's eyes as it could calculate stuff so that's one part of it is maybe they don't they don't hold on to it because they don't recognize what it is but then it gets pulled and i and if it has if if there's big demand for it i think that then competitors say like here's a solution unmet demand and they come in and they can learn from the original innovator in the 36 stratagems which we covered there is to catch something first let it go and it just points out the benefit of learning from the mistakes of your competition and then coming in. 
we're going to focus on something that I teed up in the introduction, which is the six attributes and seven barriers. And that will probably actually take up most of today's show. But one last thing I wanted to just point out through your research, you showed that what makes great companies great is that the founder had the ability to create a system in which employees can bring ideas to reality. So, it, and, and in many cases, you say Steve Jobs, Ingvar Kamprad, Jeff Bezos, they didn't create the innovation that made them famous. They just created the environment in which it could thrive. We have this narrative of a great company as beginning with one big idea. It's usually not one big idea. It's a series of ideas. But also that big idea isn't necessarily the founding idea. Igbar Kamprad is the founder of IKEA. And what was like the central innovation that made IKEA become the dominant manufacturer and retailer of furniture in the world? It probably was the flat pack box, the idea that we don't ship completed furniture, but packed in flat boxes, right? That idea wasn't created until 10 years after IKEA's founding, when an employee was one of the early employees, he was trying to get a table in the back of someone's car and it didn't fit. So he took off the legs, folded it and put it in. And then he proposed, maybe we should sell all of our furniture this way. So the question, if you want to be a leader is when someone introduces an idea like that, how do you react? Is there a space for someone to propose an idea like that for it to be taken seriously and some action taken on it, maybe tested, whatever that is, right? But often we're too busy. We're like, oh no, we got our business model locked in, right? And this is how we do things. And we need to just sell that next table. Uh, I don't want to stop, right? So, and, you know, and and, and Jeff Bezos, uh, Steve Jobs also says, that he talks about innovation being about people coming up with ideas and calling themselves at at, at, at 10 o'clock at night because they have a way of that, that shoots holes and how they've been thinking about the problem is that activity of in the hallways coming up, creating ideation. Anyway, so the idea rarely comes from the entrepreneur. It really comes from the CEO. We slap the entrepreneur's name or the CEO's name or the company's name on the idea because it's easier to tell a story about one person than to tell the story about the entrepreneur who probably had the idea and passed it to someone else, who passed it to someone else, who passed it to someone else, and no one remembers who was that first baton carrier. So we're, we're going to look at the six attributes of an entrepreneur and then the seven barriers for entrepreneurship. I interviews 150 entrepreneurs like Gene. They're really hard to find because they look different than what you think they will look like. They don't wear hoodies. They don't wear, you know, black sweaters. They don't come in with ripped jeans, right? It's it, and so, but here, here's the thing: if we the the theory of entrepreneurship is that an entrepreneur, and therefore I would say an entrepreneur, does four things: they, you, they discover opportunities, then they choose which opportunities to pursue, then they take action on those opportunities, and they rally the resources needed to take that action. So we need to be able to do that as an entrepreneur or enable our entrepreneurs to do that. And then one of the attributes that are required for that. So I looked at every study I could find that showed a statistically significant correlation between an attribute of a, a, like a, 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 the attribute of a person and their effectiveness as an innovator. And they're really there's six. So first they discover opportunities. What do we need, need there? We need market awareness. 
you need to be have be someone who goes to the conferences, reads the trades, goes out with the customers, right? Choosing opportunities. There are two attributes there. Innovative thinking. So I coming up with new ideas of ways to solve a problem and calculated risk taking. They're not risk seekers. They look to create what I consider risk asymmetry. They create a situation where there's a high upside with minimum downside. They're betting their company's money, not their money. So we've got three attributes so far, market awareness, innovative thinking, calculated risk taking. Move to the next stage. We've got taking action. Two things here, intrinsic motivation and proactivity. Intrinsic motivation is to say that they love innovating for innovating sake. Frustrated entrepreneurs that I interviewed say things like, I came up with this idea, I gave it to the company, and the company is making billions and billions of dollars of it. All I did was I, I just got a raise and a, and a promotion. I could be making so much more money if I was an entrepreneur pursuing myself. The ones that are frustrated and say, yeah, but I didn't, it's true, but I didn't have to put my family's financial risk, my financial situation at risk. I didn't have to live off of ramen noodles and, and, and pizza. You know, I didn't have to move into a small apartment. They enjoy innovating. They enjoy the impact. They don't even need to have their name on it which makes them kind of hard to, to, to see, they don't point at themselves. They're like, they look back and they say, I built that or I helped make that happen. And the next attribute for taking action is proactivity. They don't ask permission. We'll, we're going to talk about this later. I think it's a term that I've been using lately is a permission pocket. It's a pocket of time at the beginning of the innovation where they don't have permission. They don't go ask their boss if they can do it. They just do it. Now, they take calculated risks, so the, they're not risking a lot by taking that action, but that allows them to take action. And then finally, rallying resources. The main issue, the main attribute there is political acumen. They don't view the, polit they, they view the political challenge as part of the problem-solving process. It's not even a necessary evil, like I'm good at it, but I hate doing it. They love it. It's the human side of innovation. So market awareness, innovative thinking, calculated risk-taking, intrinsic motivation, proactivity, political acumen, those are the attributes that we want to look for. Those are the apps that we want to develop. And very hard to find those, those attributes. Like if you're, if you're interviewing and looking for a corporate entrepreneur, you need to know, you need to read about it. You know, so if you think about the, the typical way hiring is done, Many people in the recruitment agencies don't know this information. So you can see where the kind of thing you can, you can actually think you're innovative and not have some of these attributes as well. So I, I, I find that it's so interesting that if you're a recruiter in this area or you're a, you're a hiring company, you kind of need to know this stuff, but you don't because you're so busy working on the core business today that you don't investigate tomorrow. So th there's a lot of stuff in there as well. But you were talking about this in the book, and we, we alluded to this before. You've created this acronym called INNOVATE with one N, and the this is the common barriers. Out of the 150 innovators that you interviewed, they all told you the most common barriers that existed to innovation. So we're going to share those next, and this is this acronym, INNOVATE. So I interviewed these 150 people over the five-year period. And I ask each of them, what are the barriers that you face and how do you overcome those barriers? And then just picture an Excel thing with a, a Excel table, 150 names. Next to it, row B is the key barriers that they that they saw. And then, and then I have these different 
col- rows, sorry, different columns, and I mark like what which which barriers are do they mention? And I just sort of pulling together to see, oh, you know, this person is ta- saying something similar to that person. Anyway, seven barriers come up as the dominant ones that are most often mentioned. I is intent. N is need. O, options. V, value blockers. A, act. T, team. And E, environment. As I said earlier, I believe all models are wrong. Some are useful. I did force it into that. V is really, should really be business model conflict or business model design, but then it was spelled innovate. And so I'm going to spell it innovate. So I called it value blockers. What is the blocking your innovation from reaching the market and how do you overcome that? I have a little quote from each of them. Maybe that will tee you up. So we'll expand on each of them. So I, the intent, the first one, you say here, facing early obstacles, many would-be internal innovators abandon their original intent because they're just going to go, oh, you know what? It's going to be too much hassle. Yeah, and that's the that's where it starts. If we don't have intent or we don't activate intent, no one's going to be looking for innovation. What's interesting about the lack of intent, there's a whole study, whole kind of area of entrepreneurial research called entrepreneurial intention. That's what precedes the pursuit of taking entrepreneurial action. But what's interesting, it even precedes your seeing of the entrepreneurial opportunity. The fascinating study of a professor in the UK, he found two groups of people. One group self-identifies as lucky, the other one as unlucky. And he gives them each a task, read a newspaper, count the number of photos in the newspaper. Lucky people, sorry, unlucky people take something like six minutes on average to complete the task. Lucky people usually complete the task within seconds. Why? Page two of the book, of the newspaper, has a print ad that's half a page. You couldn't mix and miss it. It's not not that it's too small to see. And it says, there are 63 photos in this newspaper. You can stop looking. And the lesson there is, it's not that the unlucky people didn't see it. It was there, but because their eyes were focused on photos, they didn't notice it. And so I think lucky people are people who wake up in the morning and say, you know, I might meet the love of my life today. I might find a hundred pounds or dollars on the, on the, on the ground. Right. I, and so they're looking for it. They're open to it. You know, it's like that, you know, that red car effect that if, you know, if I ask you how many, how many, how many red cars did you see on the way to work? You might not know. But if I say, if I ask you in the morning, like how many red cars are you going to see? you start noticing all these red cars, right? So that's the first thing we have to do is unlock intent. Three things we have to do there. Number one, we have to address the idea that we're not capable, self-efficacy. Number two, we have to address the idea that this won't work. And number three, address the fear of social reaction. How will my colleagues and boss react to it? To activate that intent, you need to then need to know what your organization is even looking for. So this could be MasterCard we talked about before, their war and cash. So that activates me to go, well, what does the organization need? Yeah, because uh, there's a study by Don Scholl, and he found that fewer than 55% of mid-level managers can name even two of their company's top two strategic priorities. So our strategies are so complicated, uh, our people don't understand them, 
we as entrepreneurs don't understand our company strategy. So the company asks us to innovate and then we come up with ideas and the ideas aren't strategically valuable to the company. And so they're rejected. And then we go back to step one. We argue, oh, we've been told no multiple times. I've lost, And then you lose your intent to innovate. So we really need to understand our company strategies and companies need to simplify their strategies so everyone can understand. Options is next. And here you say would be internal innovators often grow frustrated because they become fixated too early on a few innovative ideas or even worse, just one. The IKEA effect kicks in. I fall in love with my idea instead of opening up my mind to other options. There's nothing more dangerous than an idea than when it's the only idea you have. That's the issue. It's like we have one idea, then we pursue it to the death or we give up on it. If, and remember, a good success rate of internal innovation is about 15%. I think I used this quote before in, in, our, in our talk. Jeff Bezos said, if you have one in 10 chance of, a, of 100 times payoff, you got to take that bet every time, but you have to be ready to lose nine times out of 10. Can you be ready to lose nine times out of 10? How can you be, how can you be 100% successful in that environment is to pursue 10 ideas. At least one of them is going to work and consider that the portfolio of those 10 ideas, what you're doing, not one idea, another idea, another idea. Then you've got a 90% failure rate. So if we have a large portfolio of ideas, then we have can diversify our bets and and, and achieve 100% success rate. I mean, I mean, there's one guy, Greg Hale at Disney. He invented the fast pass. And when I went to visit him, he showed me on his desk, he was, he's also an Imagineer. I didn't know if you know this, but I, I thought an Imagineer was a particular role and there was, you know, you, your job was Imagineer. No, it's not. It is a distinction. He's responsible, at the time I interviewed him, he's responsible for park safety, ensuring, you know, people don't get hurt in the parks. But he's also an Imagineer. He's had several other jobs. And throughout his career, I forget how many patents, but many, many patents. And he showed me on the desk all these different things that he made up before there was a smartphone. He had invented this tablet kind of thing to help people navigate the park, right? And then that evolves into the into the fast pass, which then becomes how Disney is able to automate things and track people and optimize flow and and digitize the uh, the, the experience. The question kind of comes up then: How does a Disney keep a place a guy like that? And you you tell us in the book, well, because they help them bring these ideas to life much quicker than going out and selling the ideas, trying to get VC funding, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it satisfies you. And then you also have the safety net of actually getting paid every month. Yeah, yes, exactly, exactly. People have told me that it's like, it's slow to start, but once you get traction, you scale really quickly. It's the opposite experience of an entrepreneur. You, it's easy to get started, but to scale is a long time takes a long time. If you call up someone and say, you know, that you need a partner or a part or some or a buyer or something and you say, "Hey, I'm Greg from Disney." You're going to get a phone call back. If you say, "Hey, I'm Kaihan from whatever," they won't, you know, you might not get a phone call a phone call back. You have access to scale that entrepreneurs would only dream of to expertise. You can pick up the phone and call up experts that are inside the company. You can get salespeople. You it's anyway. It's there's so many advantages to pursuing these options inside an established company. Linking it to our our prior podcast, outthink the competition. How do you create options? Is particularly fourth options is by applying the ideas 
process from Outthink Accomplished. But will we share that quickly just as a reminder? Sure. So in Outthink the Competition, you can say Outthink Competition is all about options. And in in it, I present this framework idea. So we want to create drain a lot of options. Step one, imagine the ideal future. D, dissect the problem and pick an area to to innovate in. E, expand your options by ideating lots of options. A, analyze those options and choose which ones you're going to pursue. S is sell the idea internally. Nice, man. Nice. Thanks for the reminder. And then V is value blockers. And this is the big challenge that you have a way of doing things. The organization has allocated resources towards that current business model. For example, some entrepreneur comes up with an idea that then competes with that business model or appears to compete with it. But you tell us successful innovators find clever ways to engineer their ideas. So rather than conflicting, they enhance the company's standing. So this is the V that I would have called B for business model or business model conflict. So yeah, you might have heard this term of uh, corporate antibodies. You know, that there's this idea that you introduce an idea inside an established company and these corporate antibodies emerge to kill the idea. You've heard Clayton Christensen talk about how disruptive innovations are inconsistent with the prioritization and budgeting decisions of an established company. I think that that's not a law. I think that's just a warning. And companies have figured out how to address it and entrepreneurs can as well. So the way that you, you have you come up with an idea and you have a natural business model around the idea. If you're an entrepreneur, you could build whatever business model you want around the idea. But if you go through the APs that we talked about before, and say, positioning, how would I want to brand this? Pricing, how would I want to price it? Placement, how would I want to distribute it? Go through the business model, and then you identify where is the business model that I'm proposing inconsistent with the existing business model. You can then strategically predict where you're going to face business model conflict, and then you can go back and redesign your business model to reduce the business model conflict. And if you can do that, you can radically improve your chances of success. If you're introducing a business, uh, an idea that is a, an entirely new business model, 95% chance of failure. If you're introducing an idea that is within your existing business model, there is only a 40% chance of failure. So it's about moving closer and closer, not 100%, but closer and closer to an idea that fits with your existing business model. Yeah, so t- tons of examples. Of, of that as well. The next one then is the idea of the clash, the catch 22, this is act. And you say established businesses tend to ask employees to prove an idea will work before giving them permission to take action. Hence your idea of that permission pocket. But there's a quote that I wanted to share by Astro Teller, the CEO of Google's moonshot factory X. He said, you can't pre-business plan a moonshot any more than you can paint a masterpiece via color by numbers given to you by a committee. I absolutely love that quote because it's it's that challenge of, okay, how much is this going to bring us? What, when will this be profitable, et cetera? That killed, for me, working as a corporate entrepreneur, killed so many ideas because we had a CFO who just did not want to allocate resources to the future, probably because he had a short-minded tenure for himself. He didn't intend to stick around for very long. But it's that challenge for organizations because naturally as an innovator, you're going to be a risk carrier 
and you're going to be seen as a risk carrier throughout the organization. The way I've been describing it is they want you to prove it to do it, but you realize you need to do it to prove it. And that's the catch-22. Established organizations, because they've, they've found a business model that works, you naturally start becoming uh, kind of risk-averse because you know the answers. You want to repeat the answer. You don't want to keep trying new things, which makes sense. But when that becomes a cultural norm or cultural expectation, then you kill off the new things that you could be building. So most organizations have evolved or large organizations have evolved to accept an act, a, a, a prove, plan, execute approach. Prove that this works through a business plan. I'll give you funding. Then you go and execute it. But new innovations often require, usually require an act, learn, build approach. Take action on the idea, learn from that action, and then build further on it. This is the... You know, this is the this is like you know the agile approach. This is the uh, human-centered design. And when you ask someone to prove the idea, either you can't or they make it up because you don't know how company a, a customer is going to react to a new product until you've shown them the new product. If it's truly a new product, you ne you can't go look up what's the average adoption rate of this type of product. It doesn't exist, but you still have to put an adoption rate in your financial projection. So you make up this projection, which is just completely made up in order to get funding. And then you learn that actually it's wrong, right? Actually adoption is much higher or much lower. And so, but, but the thing that's interesting is that we think of this as some new thing, right? We think of it as a Silicon Valley, Google, invented this idea but no 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 this was you know hp it developed the first electronic calculator it asked a marketing firm to prove that there's a market for this because if they couldn't then we we're not gonna launch it right not gonna release it they proved that there is no market for an electronic calculator why because there's an existing entrenched incumbent competitor that already does what this thing does but at a far superior price point why would anyone buy an electronic calculator if you have a slide rule? And if you believe, if you tried to, if you tried to prove there was a market for that, they couldn't prove it. What did they do? Did they say, "Oh, we can't prove it, so I'm not going to execute it"? Execute it? No. They said, "Let's take action. Let's learn and let's build. Let's just produce a thousand of them, put them out in the market. Before long, they're selling a thousand a day." I can give you tons of examples of this from way before today, you know, from the 1960s. This is something that large companies have historically done and they can continue to do. The myth that we can't do this when, we've, when we're at scale is just false. It's just lazy. So we need to embrace this Ackler and build approach, allow people to experiment. Beautiful, man. I can, I can sense the energy off you about this, this point. The next one is team. The usual way corporate innovation is let's let's build a corporate innovation lab, let's hire people for the lab, then let's find ideas. But actually, if you look at all the acronyms so far, it's only at this stage that you go to build a team. And I found that interesting with Jean when you were talking about Jean throughout the book. It was only at this point that she brought together a group of people, a shadow organization, only after all the work she had done to validate the idea first. And she's doing all of this still in the permission pocket. Her boss doesn't even know she's doing it. She's intent. She's got the intent. Need. She identifies this need. Options. She generates some ideas. Chooses an idea. V. She thinks about the value blockers and does a few things to change her idea. There's a limit value blockers. A. She decides that she's going to take action. 
She's going to invite some people to come and look at a mock-up of this website, but she needs a team to do this. She could, you would think, go to her boss and say, I've got this idea. Can I get funding or can you assign Jim and Jane and Frank and Margaret to work with me? But no, she doesn't do that. She sends out an email. She said, I got this idea. It's kind of like this. How about we have pizza next Thursday? And if you're interested, I'd like to talk to you about it. She told me that if seven people showed up, she was going to pursue the idea. But if less than seven people showed up, she wasn't going to pursue the idea. Let me point one thing out about that. She There's two important insights in that. Number one, it's not her only idea under options. She's got a whole bunch of other ideas. If this doesn't work, she's got another one and another one and another one. So she's not tied to this idea. The second is she's testing for internal resonance of the idea. Intrapreneurs view the company as a customer. And when your customer says, I don't like this idea, you don't say, oh, you're wrong customer, bad customer, ignorant customer. No. You say, well, tell me why you don't like this idea. What is it about it that's not attractive to you? She's testing the internal adoption of the idea now. Right? Do you see that? What happens on Thursday? 30 people show up. That's an indication that there is internal interest in the idea. Most of these innovations are seeded by an informal group of people. This bob- bottling up groundswell of support around the idea. And we're talking about people from marketing, from logistics, from finance, not only editors, but from all across different functions that were interested in the idea. Then what do they do? They meet, they Every two weeks, they divide up work. They they go off on their own. And the, the boss starts noticing they're doing stuff, but they're still getting their jobs done. So he doesn't step in the way. That's an important thing. Can you, can you give me... There's one of the things we'll talk about later, I think, is uh, can you create the organizational freedom for people to rally around ideas while they're still doing their core job, right? And so what, what do you need to do then? You get, you get this idea. You need to remove organizational friction. You need to assemble this cross... Motivate this cross-functional team align them around one important goal, use metrics and data to be tracking that the like the one most important thing. It's helpful if you have a scoreboard so everyone can see what's going on. Establish this rapid rhythm of short, frequent meetings so we can fit more easily within the flow of work and generate positive velocity. Go for some early wins and then other people start looking and go, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? And the, and the groundswell blows, grows and grows and grows. And only then, and only then does she take it to the boss. I love it, man. And I think this is so, so important. You know, when, again, working, having failed at corporate in- innovation in, in many ways, I realized at one stage that the failure was not on the corporate innovator in many times. It was, the, it was just the DNA of the organization. And I started to flip into, this is how I got into L&D work and had, I got into keynoting and running workshops because I started to do them internally because I was like, oh, this is just an understanding problem. This is, some people are really motivated by new ideas, et cetera. Other people are just, don't have the time to even read about this stuff and where the organization's going or where the industry's going. And I, I love that about this book. It brings everybody to the, the same level. And it looks for that kind of army of the willing, those initial folk who are going to go and join the team, etc. But then the next part, and probably the most important to bring the idea forward forever, is E, which is environment. And here you say, 
successful internal innovators figure out how to create islands of freedom, you call it, from which they can access the talent structures, cultural norms, and leadership support that will support their attempts at innovation. And here you talk about fringes, edges, and islands of freedom. So you were at the edge up until this point, I-N-O-V-A-T, got the team working at the edge, and you need to start coming into the center, getting the organization behind it. As I said earlier, successful internal innovators view the political challenge as part of the problem-solving process. They've got strong political acumen. And one pattern that they use to apply this political, so you want to do the usual things, right? Look at your stakeholders, who are going to be the early adopters and advocates, who are going to be the positive skeptics, the negative skeptics, and go and work the tails of this internal adoption curve. Got to do all that stuff. Who's got high power? Who's got low power? You got to do all that. And there's a lot of tools and books and stuff about how to do that. But what I found really interesting is this idea of islands of freedom, that there is an obvious place where you should take this idea. You should take it to your boss or your boss's boss. But what they often do is they take it to an unexpected place where they see they will find the freedom to pursue the idea. So for example, there's one guy, Elliot, Elliot Berman. He was working in the early 1960s on solar panels. He arguably innovated solar panel, solar panel technology more than any other individual in the history of solar energy. He brought down the cost to produce a kilowatt of energy down by 80%. His problem was his employer, Exxon, was not naturally supportive of funding something that could cannibalize his core product, right? So what he does, really clever, he says, where in the company will I find an island of freedom where I will get support to pursue the next step on this idea? And the island of freedom is sitting right off the shore on offshore shore oil rigs. And he says, look, I'm not talking about making this thing as an external opportunity. This solves an internal problem, which is we can't power our oil rigs consistently. But if we put solar panels on them, we can. So he sells as an internal operational innovation. He gets funding. He gets a team. And he gets the time to work on the innovation. Eventually, this thing gets spun out as a separate company. Eventually, Ken Kutanagi, the creator of PlayStation, he had the idea. The natural place to do to build that idea is in the electronics division of Sony. But he recognized that for, for cultural reasons, he wasn't going to get the freedom that he needed. So instead, he gets permission to build it in the entertainment division, the division that develops music and and, and, and and video. So the 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 key here is don't take your innovation to the default place that you should take it. Maybe don't even take it to your boss. Step back, look for islands of freedom, and then place the innovation where you're most likely to get the support that you need. Again, it highlights the amount of work. I mean, people think innovation is not a discipline. It takes massive discipline to go through all these steps it's not as fun as it might look like from the outside. There's certainly no foosball table in sight at this stage. You've gone through all this hard work. You might earn the foosball table later on, but it, this is a huge amount of work to get to this point. And again, I just want to point out the book is full of acronyms and, and helpful tools and case studies 
and stories like Kayan has tipped on today, many, many of them. Kayan, I have a final quote that really I thought encapsulated your call to action for the world from this book as well. And I'd like to finish with that as a way to thank you for all your commitment to this series. And again, I'm like, one of the reasons I do this is like, I feel like I've caught up with somebody's work. If I, if I read their most recent book and then I find out they've a whole back catalog, I go, oh, I need to now read all the back catalog. And now you're going to go and do it again. So we will be back to do more on your future books as well. But as I'm reading this, I'd love you to have a think about your final call to action for our audience as well. And maybe your final word on the entire series as well. So I'll go here now to give you time to think. So you wrote here, and I loved what you wrote. You said more than 80% of employees in the United States and most other developed countries are disengaged at work, meaning that eight of 10 workers spend their work hours just trying to get through the day. This disengagement costs the US economy about $450 billion per year in lost productivity. That is more than the revenues of Amazon, Boeing, GE, and Google combined. It is more than all U.S. companies spend on R&D every year. And that's not all you tell us. Beyond economics, this is a major humanitarian problem. Disengagement at work has been shown to link to anxiety, depression, and damaged family relationships. I believe, this is you speaking here, that a major cause of this disengagement stems from the fact that most employees feel their creativity is being suppressed. Is it any wonder so many have lost their sense of purpose or passion? Imagine the growth we could fertilize if we could reignite that passion. Imagine what we could accomplish as a society if we could reinvigorate that sense of purpose. Beautiful, beautiful, man. Yeah. Thank you. No, it's, yeah, this has been, yeah, I think this is really an important problem. And, and, and luckily, companies are evolving to meet that problem. If we take I-N-O-V-A-T-E, we can start seeing what the next form of a corporation should be. Intent. Stop treating your people like employees and treat them like entrepreneurs with self-efficacy, with passion, with freedom. Need. Throw away your complex business plans and instead evolve to simple statements of purpose that everyone can understand and align to. Options. Don't look for ideas in boardrooms. Look for them in hallways. Value blockers. Don't stick to one business model, but rather create an ecosystem of business models that can coexist together. Act. Stop asking for business plans and business cases. Just allow people to experiment. Team. Break down your hierarchies into small, agile teams and environments. Stop running the company like a centrally planned economy. Recognize that a successful company is a platform where smart, passionate people can come to find opportunities, rally the resources to pursue them, and create great things. And if we embrace those seven things, I think we're going to create a future that works for humanity, that creates the next innovation that's going to transform society, and that addresses this issue of disengagement at work. What a beautiful way to finish not only the series, but the last episode of the innovation show for the year, man, it's been an absolute pleasure doing this with you. I've come to recognize you as a friend. I hope that's been the case for you. And I've loved going back to the back catalog, 
hopefully reinvigorating some gr great thinking for you as well from from your old work as well so it's been a bit of pleasure where can people find out more about you and your work for those who haven't joined us probably the best place is to go to my website kaihan.net that's probably the best place k-a-i-h-a-n.net i'm also really active on on linkedin author of these books behind me the the kaihan collection and this the latest in the kaihan collection Driving Innovation from Within, Kayan Krippendorf. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much.